thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Betrayal. It's a harsh, even melodramatic word, and yet most people feel that it's happened to them, to you, at some point in our lives. Or we worry that we might have been guilty of betraying someone else. An act of betrayal is at the heart of the Christian story, but not only Judas. How about Brutus, who stabbed Caesar? Is this where stab in the back originates? Or Guy Fawkes? Or closer to my home, how about the Cambridge spies, Maclean, Burgess, Philby and Anthony Blunt? Of course, the Soviets, they weren't betrayers. Beyond the human race in the more natural world, the cuckoo is the ultimate symbol of betrayal and deception. Here's an extract from an article on the Naked Scientist website. Researchers noticed that after laying an egg in a host's nest, female cuckoos make an unusual chuckling call. At first glance, this behavior seems bizarre. Why bother being stealthy whilst laying the egg if you're going to declare your presence immediately afterwards? Jenny York, lead author of the study, was particularly interested in the acoustic similarity between this cuckoo chuckle and the call of the sparrowhawk. Sparrowhawks are predators of reed warblers, which are a favorite host species of the cuckoo. She explained, We thought that maybe the cuckoo is imitating the sparrowhawk to distract the reed warbler's attention from its nest to its own safety, increasing the cuckoo's chances of successfully parasitizing the nest. As Cole Porter almost said, birds do it, bees do it, even educated fleas do it. Let's do it. Let's cheat on love. Discussing betrayal with me today are Dr. Kitty Alone, a regular contributor to Naked Reflections and a researcher here at the Wolf Institute, and Dr. Emmanuel Deli Esposti from the Centre for Islamic Studies in Cambridge. Emmanuel has a special interest in Shia Islam in Europe. More of that later. According to our clip, deception and betrayal are kind of hardwired in the avian world, presumably also in the human sphere. Kitty? Uh, yes, I think there's some truth in that. And I have to say that um, when it comes to sort of waging campaigns of misinformation and deception, I think pretty much um, every species is at it. Um, so for whether it's just new camouflage, like the cuttlefish, or whether it's more sort of intentional deceptions from chimpanzees, our nearest um, relatives, um, it's certainly very rife in um, the animal kingdom and certainly in humans. And why is that? Well, being deceptive is advantageous. It confers a lot of benefits. Um, Many researchers think that deception sort of evolved around the same time as the emergence of language in humans, and it kind of makes a lot of intuitive sense. So you no longer have to rely on brute force to get what you want. If you are sort of wily-tongued or um, 
deceptive, you can then get what you want from through telling lies rather than raping, pillaging and stealing, for example. So, and you tend to find that um, the urge or the, the tendency to deceive in human beings starts around the same time that language begins as well. And it's very much yoked to what we call in psychology the theory of mind. So that is the ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, because to be able to be deceptive, you have to know what the other person is thinking. And of course, putting yourself in somebody else's shoes is the whole purpose of dialogue, isn't it? To understand someone better. It is, yeah. Exactly. And in fact, um, lying or being deceptive is sort of (laughs) almost like a very healthy sign of development. So if your three year old toddler is not lying, you're probably more cause for concern. So that's that's rather reassuring if you have any sort of little Machiavellians among among your children. Um, But also Machiavellianism or the ability to lie, be deceptive is often correlated with what we call fluid intelligence. So if you're a liar, if you're a good liar, it often correlates with things like creativity, um, the ability to reason and adaptive reasoning. And um, it requires a lot of mental gymnastics to be able to sustain a lie. Deception, Emmanuel, is also part of the story of religion. And your expertise is in Shia Islam. And, and betrayal is almost at the heart of that itself, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I was I was listening to your introduction there where you were talking about uh, the Christian story. And obviously, there is a very strong element of betrayal in the story of Jesus. Um, but I think also in the in the Islamic tradition, I wouldn't say necessarily that the initial split between Shia and Sunni Islam was anything about betrayal. It was more of a disagreement about a succession. But certainly, betrayal came into it relatively rapidly when you have a burgeoning sense of different identities that are tied up with, on the one hand, religious ideas, but on the other hand, also political ideas. Uh, The Shia have been from the outset the minority and have very much seen themselves as almost an embattled minority and a persecuted minority. And this is also very much tied up with the story of Imam Ali, who was the first Shia imam, he was the fourth Sunni caliph, but he was the first Shia imam. And in fact, the word Shia comes from Shiat Ali, meaning the followers of Ali. And he was betrayed um, by a renegade who who assassinated him, again, similar to the to what you talk about Julius Caesar, this idea of stabbing in the back. He came up behind Ali while he was praying in the mosque at Kufa and hit him over the head with a poison sword. Uh, So betrayal is in in some ways not just part of the human condition, uh, as Kitty was saying, but also part of the the story of religion. Do you think the the issue of betrayal is magnified because of the intimacy of the relationship? In other words, the closeness of the Shia and the Sunni. So that disagreement was understood in language of betrayal because they were so close or because you look at the the, the story between Jesus and his fellow Jews. There was a family story which increased the magnitude of the disappointment, the loss, the disagreement. In all honesty, I've never really seen it in that way in terms of it being any kind of family or or closeness. I think the story of Imam Ali is more of a renegade who is trying to make the world a better place in, in the Shia story and who is rejected by the majority and therefore assassinated in a similar way to Jesus. 
at the time. In the Christian story, you have Jesus as this redemptive figure who was not accepted at his time. Interestingly, the Shia sense of betrayal continues with Imam Ali's son, Imam Hussein. Part of the history of Shiism is the death of Imam Hussein at the Battle of Karbala, which happened a number of years after the death of Imam Ali. And Imam Hussein was again betrayed by the people of Kufa. Interestingly, again, it was in Kufa um, when they allegedly pledged allegiance to him against the Sunni Caliph of the time and then reneged on their promise to support him such that he and his family were then massacred. So you have very much this sense of shifting allegiances and how you have these political pawns that are being played but then it is ultimately people who pay the sacrifice and people's lives who pay the sacrifice. Yes, there are always consequences to acts of deception and betrayal. Kitty, if we were to extend it, if I were to ask you which act in human history epitomizes for you betrayal, what, what, what comes to your mind? Well, I mean, I think it's hard really not to say Judas Iscariot. I think that is the archetypal storyline um, around betrayal that everybody knows or has heard of. It's influenced art, literature. Um, I mean, and it's interesting, actually, apart from Peter, Judas is the disciple with the most amount of lines in the Bible. So there is something that we are fascinated by, by these betrayers, these deceptive Machiavellian figures. And um, so I'm going to say the obvious, I'm afraid, Judas Iscariot for me would be the um, the archetypal story of betrayal. It's interesting you mentioned Peter because, of course, he he rejected Jesus three times. Exactly, exactly. And poor Judas, um, depending on whether you're sort of more in the line of the uh, the pro Judas, though it's hard to be, I have to say. Um, but what's interesting actually is the way that um, the Judas story plays out. It's actually quite a psychologically convincing study of the effects of betrayal, certainly for Judas himself, depending on which of the Gospels you read. But actually in Mark, he tries to return the silver and he actually kills himself. So there is some degree of um, psychological truth to that story. There are enormous emotional consequences, not only for the person that you deceive or betray, but the betrayer themselves. And what I find fascinating is that... um, People have certainly in medieval Europe, people somehow sort of equated Judas Iscariot with the Jews themselves. And it was um, shown very often in the art of the time. So in medieval art in Europe, Judas is often shown with flaming red hair. And in fact, there's an old saying in English, which is to be Judas born is to be born with red hair. And this association is believed to come from the sort of the medieval trope of Jews having red hair. And what about you, Emmanuel, in terms of a moment or a figure in human history? What what strikes you as a sort of epitomising betrayal? Well, it's a very big question. I think there are numerous instances of betrayal in human history And I think what's so interesting is that the idea of betrayal comes out in so many different traditions and also taps into our own. And and forgive me for my pop psychology here, if Kitty could perhaps correct me, but it taps into our own insecurities that perhaps we don't know everything that is always going on and that we also second guess situations. And I wonder if that's perhaps one of the reasons why we are so fixated on these figures. Yeah, I I think you're pretty much spot on, Emmanuel. I mean, The idea of betrayal violates deeply held assumptions about trust and bonding um, in human relationships. Um, 
And what's also interesting is that one person is at the same time both the deceiver and the deceived. So during the sort of the course of human development, we build up this armory of sort of um, epistemological vigilance. So we become very, we become better at telling who's lying to us and who's not. So at the same time, we also have to up our, our deceptive tactics. So it's this ever ongoing arms race, if you like, between on the one hand, um, this armory of truth detecting mechanisms that we have. But on the other hand, we've got this incredibly sophisticated suite of, you know, deceptive missiles that we can throw out. Um, what's perhaps worth noting just briefly is that human deception, particularly in a laboratory setting, is very systematic and very predictable. Um, we are not generally a population of huge liars. It's quite rare that somebody will tell a massive lie. Um, what we are is a population of very little liars. So the classic example that a psychologist called Dan Ariely has looked at is this sort of what he calls the fudge factor. So in experimental games like the, um, the Prisoner's Dilemma or the Dictator game, people will generally lie. People will report having six heads when they actually only flipped a coin and it came up with four heads. Any more than a difference of two is too difficult to justify. And so what you find is that people across cultures and across the globe tend to lie to the same degree. So we're little liars rather than sort of huge fibmongers, which is at the same time comforting and also slightly disconcerting as well. I wanted to ask Kitty actually something that perhaps she is better placed to to speak on than myself. And I think something we haven't yet brought up, the idea of self-deception. I think we are not only very adept at fooling other people, we are also very adept at fooling ourselves. Yes, absolutely. We're, we're masters of it. We have, on the one hand, a great desire to see ourselves as very moral, honest people, but also we want to benefit. We're self-interested. So we have this constant struggle between trying to maintain an image of ourselves or an internal image of being moral, upright and honest. But yet we can't help but be tempted to sort of indulge in the odd bit of light deception. And um, it's so sort of ingrained into us that people are extraordinarily good at deceiving themselves. So when asked, most people will state that they're much better drivers than they actually are. What's called the sort of the optimism bias. People will report having less chance of getting very common diseases like cancer or heart disease, for example. So, yes, we have to be careful of that. We deceive others, but we're also equally as good at deceiving ourselves. But is there not a difference between deception and betrayal? Um, yes, there is. I think you need a deception for a betrayal. And it has to be some kind of malicious betrayal where some kind of very strong trust or strong bond is violated. So you can't be betrayed without there being some element of deception involved. But the true is the same is not true of deception. Well, I'm not going to deceive you when I tell you that we've reached the halfway point of this podcast. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Dr. Kitty Alone and Dr. Emmanuel Deliasposti. And we're discussing betrayal. Social scientists have had a great time devising experiments to explore the nature of human deception and betrayal. Here's an account from the naked scientists of a recent piece of research. Professor Prada's research is largely based on MRI, magnetic resonance imaging scans. The researchers view what happens in the brain when people play the prisoner dilemmas game, where people are asked to choose either to cooperate with or betray a partner without ever having met them. If they cooperate, they each receive a small and equal proportion of a reward. 
If one cooperates and the other does not, the one who does not will win all of the reward, while the one who did cooperate gets nothing. Kitty, could you explain this and, and sort of other experiments in your field? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people in psychology and behavioural economics have become, are coming up with sort of increasingly more elaborate ways to um, deceive people in the lab, but deceive them for the purpose of good, which is science. Um, and so, for example, in my PhD, I was very interested in the idea of deception and confession. So what I did was design an experiment based on various other paradigms in the literature that involved an online coin tossing task. So all participants were told that they had they had to toss the coin 10 times and then report the amount of heads that they got. And for every head that they um, report, they got an extra 10 pence. Um, unbeknownst to them, the, the, um, the task was actually rigged, so you could never get any more than two heads. And what we found sort of um, was in line with virtually every other um, finding in the literature, in the similar literature. So people would over-report systematically. They would over-report to a, a small degree. There would be a margin of plausibility in their lying. Um, what was interesting, though, was the more they cheated, the more morally outraged they were when we asked them, have you cheated? They expressed much, much greater levels of help dare you ask me this? So that was a really interesting finding. And it's obviously some kind of self-distancing response whereby people don't want to be or think of themselves as immoral. And so employed this mechanism of sort of this hypocritical outrage to try and distance themselves from their transgression, which was quite interesting. I have to confess, I have some sympathy for them, but that's uh, probably for a, 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 another conversation. Uh, where does... Um loyalty enter our discussion uh, in other words that we we feel loyal to our our, our, our country our society our neighborhood our religion if we have one and does that does that have some kind of impact on questions of betrayal um, from a uh, from your research Emmanuel uh, have you um, have you looked into this question of, of loyalty, particularly within Shia Islam? Because it seems to me the Shia I know are incredibly loyal to that particular um, branch of Islam that they're they're part of. I think one thing that I found very interesting in the contemporary debates, or I would say contemporary discourses, is that you have this this trope of disloyalty that comes from both sides of the of the coin. So on the one hand, you have a lot of very virulent Salafi propaganda, especially since the sort of early 2000s, since the civil war in Iraq and since the rise of ISIS, which employs this, this idea of takfirism, which is the notion that Shias are not uh, Muslim and compares them to or calls them some pagan or um, unreligious kafir. And so this idea that somehow Shias have betrayed the true Islam. And it's magnified by the closeness of the people who've let you down or the, the, the people who've betrayed you. Because I, I, I often say to my students when I'm talking, teaching about polemic, who do you argue with most? And of course, the people you argue with most are those you're closest to, those you love. And, and there's nothing like family strife. And this, the use of language like betrayer, traitor, treason is not that uncommon in big family arguments. It's, 
Would you agree, Kitty? I would. And in fact, it's interesting that you mentioned the Cambridge Five, because um, a quote that's often attributed to Kim Philby is to betray, you have to be part of the group. And I think that's absolutely true. The betrayal is so much more intense because it's come from somebody within the group, somebody who has violated these very deeply held social group norms. And for that reason alone, the betrayal is, is, is much deeper. But one person's betrayal is another person's hero. And that's one of the interesting things about the Cambridge spies is that for, for the Brits, they're sort of feeling let down by these, you know, men who were trained and brought up in the sort of very traditional way were heroes to the Soviet Union. So is it a matter of simply perception? That's an interesting question. Even from a Russian perspective, there is still some betrayal, but the betrayal happened to be for the benefit of the Russians. So it was for the benefit of the side that you're on. So in that case, oh, he's a hero. Um, So it's a very difficult, complicated dynamic. But there's still a betrayal for me. And I think the perception of whether that betrayal is good or bad depends on whether you're benefiting from it or not. That's interesting because um, if you, um, I mean, most recently, here we are, Uh, doing a remote podcast because of COVID-19. And do you remember the the Chinese doctor who was the first one to actually report the outbreak of the coronavirus? Dr. Li Wenliang was reprimanded for betraying Chinese society and and stirring up trouble. Now, we would regard him and most of the world would regard him as a hero. But at that time, the Chinese authorities regard him as as an act of, of betrayal. Where does that sit? In your psychology, Kitty, of, of what you were saying, betrayal being part of the human condition, because I'd, I'd, I'd say most of us would not see that at all as an act of betrayal. No, obviously not. But that's because we're on the other side. Um, but just as deception is a part of sort of human experience, um, everybody at some point in their life is going to experience betrayal. You know, the magnitude of that will vary, but everyone will experience what it feels like to be betrayed. And it has very significant psychological consequences. So, you know, depression, anger, self-doubt. But then even further along the spectrum, it can often lead to sort of much more longer term, serious psychiatric problems like um, so severe betrayal trauma is often linked with OCD and PTSD. Um, And interestingly, what's often associated with betrayal in psychiatry in very serious um, clinical cases is a sense of mental contamination so the betrayal actually makes you feel dirty that you have this internal feeling of dirtiness and Emmanuel in terms of contamination I'm trying to put it into a religious context there is this sort of sense between faith communities and particularly within faith communities of being contaminated by the impure whoever that impure might be Very much so. And I think one of the problems with the very virulent Salafi takfirism I was talking about earlier is this idea that Shias are somehow unclean. Um, Because in Islam, you have the idea of of negus, which is um, those who are unclean. So Muslims wash themselves because um, certain bodily substances are niggas and have to be washed before you can pray. Certain people are niggas. Um, those who are kafir are considered niggas. So Hindus, um, pagans, atheists, um, and within certain discourses, Shias. Uh, I think what's so interesting about this idea is how it's also fluid depending on what position you're standing in. I think, as Kitty was saying, it 
what what counts as good or bad is very much dependent on your perspective. I have an interesting anecdote about that. I was doing some fieldwork in Iran and um, attended one of the religious seminaries in Qom, which is um, one of the shrine cities in, in Iran. And the scholar there was teaching about Negus. And I was with a group of young British and European Shia who had mostly been born in the West. And this scholar was basically saying that you can't touch services in public because, you know, a Hindu may have touched them or you can't eat in a restaurant because an atheist may have prepared your meals with wet hands. And and what was really interesting is that these very pious, incredibly orthodox young Shia sort of turned around and said, well, we can't live like that. And so there is also an element of practicality. We use this idea of betrayal or dirtiness or loyalty to, as I said before, demarcate boundaries, but those boundaries are fluid and they are there for a purpose and therefore they can be pushed. I think also we need to spare a thought here for the for the poor betrayer themselves. Um, so this feeling of mental contamination and dirtiness is also experienced by the person who commits the betrayal. And I mean, that idea is seen throughout literature. And I mean, the most obvious example is Lady Macbeth. You know, what will these hands ne'er be clean? Like once you've committed the terrible misdeed, you can't get rid of it. It's, it's a physical, in that case, contaminant. But it's also linked to this idea that something immoral or a transgression has some kind of spiritual dirtiness to it. One of the terms that we haven't uh, used much, but is, is, is associated with betrayal, and it's not heard so much, at least in the West, is the word treason. Are our attitudes to treason changing? It has, as you're saying, I mean, it's quite an archaic expression, um, something that you'll find in Shakespeare or, you know, some sort of historical pamphlet. But the understanding of the concept hasn't gone away. And um, we're generally lucky that in the modern age, we haven't had such societal conflict that was um, happening at the time of, you know, the Elizabethans or the Romans. We live in a relatively stable, you know, here in the West, a relatively stable um, social world. But it's interesting that now things have changed during COVID um, and people are scared, people are uncertain. It's not too far of a stretch to see the notion of somebody being labelled treacherous. You can see it coming coming back into fashion, if you like. It's almost like the it's come full circle and now it's back. It's not much longer before it's going to be back in trend. Um, but I think it, the use of treason probably depends on the severity of the, the social context. And one final question before we close, um, which is what do you think the impact of the COVID-19 is actually happening in terms of those relations? Just one of the things that I found quite interesting among in the current crisis is the way in which I think Muslim and ethnic minorities have been especially affected by corona. And there is some sense, I think, of betrayal from those members of minority communities who, for example, make up the bulk of our NHS and yet who have been betrayed by government policies in the last 10 years, for example. And last word to you, Kitty. The one thing I would say is that um, broadening our means of communication to me as a psychologist sort of has one massive implication, which is that you're broadening the ways in which people can be deceived and betrayed. Um, so just because you physically can't see somebody does not mean that you can't betray them. 
um, that being shut in our house and self-isolating is not going to stop this sort of inbuilt desire or inbuilt drive to deceive. And ultimately, that means that people will still be betrayed, but just from a safe distance. Well, Kitty, I promise you and Emmanuel that we won't betray you when we edit this episode of Naked Reflections. And that's all we have time for this week. Thanks to my guests, Kitty Alone and Emmanuel Derli Esposti. And thanks to you two for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments or reflections of your own, you can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. Let us know what subjects you'd like to hear more about and how you'd like us to cover them. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcast or at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.